Welcome to Immigration Nerds. If you were not selected for this year's H-1B cap lottery, no need to fear, we got you covered. Erickson Immigration Group attorney, Crystal Kears, joins the podcast and shares the many options available. Also, we chat about the changing times in business immigration and how the industry has adapted. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. Today we have Crystal Kirst here, who is an attorney for Erickson Immigration Group. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So today we're talking about the cap lottery. And for those who did not make the lottery this year, uh, they still have a couple of options that they uh, could pursue. And I know that you had a, a couple in mind that's been used in the past. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, you know, the cap is nothing new. We've seen it uh, over the last several years where when the H-1B cap opens, we have a lottery because more visas are received by USCIS than there are visas available. So this past cap season, we uh, USCIS received over 200,000 applications. And in total, there are only 85,000 new H-1B visas available. 65,000 being reserved for those uh, with bachelor's degrees mm-hmm. and then t- uh, 25,000 reserved for master's degrees or higher, the advanced degree cap. So there will be over 100,000 applicants who will receive a rejection notice this summer from USCIS. So the next mm-hmm. question is, what do you do, right. right? If you're running out of H-1B chances for the lottery, maybe you filed a couple of years and you're, you're just not making it, what's the next step for you? Mm-hmm. So... First and foremost, if you find yourself in this situation, I highly encourage that you reach out to an immigration attorney to discuss your options because I'm going to overview uh, three of the most common, but there are several visas available and you really have to look at an individual specific circumstances to see whether or not they're going to qualify for a particular visa. So just to go into it, first, if you are uh, an F1 student and you have recently or completed your degree program or you're about to complete your degree program, most F1 students qualify for what is called post-OPT work authorization, and that stands for optional practical training. Um, And also there's a 24-month STEM extension to that um, for individuals of certain majors. So post-OPT, it requires an F1 student to be enrolled uh, for at least one full year as a full-time student. And then at the end of your program, you are given the ability to apply for work authorization for a year. The employment has to be directly related to the student's major. Um, And there are really important filing deadlines that students should be aware of. Mm -hmm. So you can file up to 90 days prior to your program end date, but you cannot uh, file any later than 60 days after your program end date. But what I find is kind of the more trickier timeline included in this is that you must file your uh, EAD application for the the post-OPT within 30 days of your DSO's recommendation. Right, correct. And uh, for those who are not aware, what's a DSO recommendation exactly? So a DSO is, stands for a designated school officer, and that mm-hmm. is an individual at the university who kind of helps out with these processes. Mm-hmm. And when a student goes to the DSO and says, you know, look, hey, my program's ending. I want to be qualified for post-OPT. Can you help me out? 
They will generally help you file the application, let you know what you need. But what is most important, you can't really move forward unless they put a notation on your I-20 stating that they have essentially approved you for this post-OBT work authorization. And so when you submit your application to USCIS for the work authorization, it has to be within 30 days of receiving that recommendation. Otherwise, your application will be denied. Got it. Got it. So once you've used that entire one year, um, some students are eligible for a 24-month STEM extension. So STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and it really boils down to the student's major. So on the I-20, which is the controlling document for an F-1 student, it will notate what the major for the program is, and it has a little code on it. And that code uh, corresponds to a list provided by the Department of Homeland Security. And essentially, if your program code is listed on what is called the STEM list, then you qualify. And you have to file before your current OPT expires. You can uh, file up to 90 days before it expires. I would recommend that you work with your DSO to get these uh, applications filed. One thing to note for the, for the STEM extension is that the student does have to complete a training plan with their prospective employer to make sure that this employment falls within the student's um, academic field. Right. All right. And then, so moving right along, we also try to assess individuals who are looking for alternatives for the O-1 visa. And that is reserved for individuals of extraordinary ability. So it is quite a high standard and not every newly grad is, is gonna qualify. It's typically more for seasoned professionals. However, we do find that the O-1 criteria does fit nicely with, typically with a PhD candidate's background. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, so for the O-1, you either have to have, have been awarded a major internationally or nationally recognized award uh, in your field. That's wow. really, I mean, that's like, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, essentially. <laughs> right, right. So most people don't qualify <laughs> into that. So then yeah. they give you uh, alternatives. So it's the award or three others. So three okay. of eight criteria. So for PhD students, typically in their degree program, they will author and publish scholarly articles, which is one of the O-1 criteria. Okay. And then also... Most PhD students engage in peer review uh, with, mm. you know, different academic journals. Research and, projects and right. research. Well, uh, well, so this is actually reviewing other people's papers, papers. to okay. get published into these um, in these premier yeah. journals. Mm -hmm. So that actually qualifies as judge of the work of others under the O-1 criteria. Mm. So there you go. If you are a PhD student and you've done those two things, you already qualify under two. Now, that doesn't necessarily limit the O-1 just to PhD students fits. It's pretty versatile because it can fit under virtually every field of expertise. Mm. Um, it is specific to science, education, arts, uh, motion picture, business, or athletics. In my six plus years of experience working with O-1s, I've never once seen a field of expertise that falls outside of the O-1. Okay. Uh, it's, the harder part is meeting those three criteria. Right. What, what have you seen uh, was the most represented out of those categories? I think it just depends on the industry. I've okay. personally seen a lot of science-related fields in motion picture industry fields. Okay. Um, but certainly you can make an argument that virtually any field of expertise falls under the O-1, provided sure. you can meet the criteria. Meet the criteria. Yeah. Um, and then also I think you, there's uh, some L-1 options available. Yes. Well. So... This is a great option. So the L-1 visa is for intra-company transferees. Mm -hmm. So there's two different 
types. There's an L1A, which is reserved for managers and executives. And then there's an L1B reserved for individuals that possess specialized knowledge. And that's really like proprietary knowledge of a company. So whether you're in the United States currently or you're out of the United States, if the employer you want to work with has some sort of subsidiary, affiliate, or parent company outside of the U.S. that they'd be willing to place you at in a qualifying position for at least 12 months, uh, 12 continuous months, then you may be able to qualify for the L1 and be transferred back to the United States after you fulfilling that one-year period. So it might not be the greatest option if, if immediately you want to remain in the United States, but certainly it's a great option if, you know, in the in the future, you're a bit more amenable to leave for a little bit and then come back, um, during which time, you know, of course, if you're out of the country, you can always continue to file for new H-1Bs under each subsequent year's CAT cases. Got it. So, yeah, so it seems that we have a couple of avenues, the post-OPT, the O-1, and also L-1 options. Mm-hmm. Um, just a quick question. What's the timeline? Do you know, like, the timelines for those three in terms of when they have to get these uh, applications in or is this on like a rolling basis? So there is no, um, cap. well, for the O1 and the L1, there is no cap like there is for the H1B. Okay. You know, you can, you can file any time of year. You don't have to qualify like you do under the lottery system. Um, I would say the O1 is a bit, it's document heavy. Hmm. So uh, depending on who's preparing it for you, it could take some time um, upwards, you know, eight to 10 weeks that I would okay. say at a minimum to get that prepared. Um, so the earlier, the better that you can. Earlier, the better. Yeah. I mean, started. as soon as you find, mm-hmm. if you receive a return notice, I would, and you know, you're kind of out of options. You're no longer in a degree program. I would certainly reach out to an immigration attorney as soon as possible to figure mm-hmm. out what, how fast do we need to move and, you know, kind of what are those next steps? Got it. Got it. So um, in your experience, how has the cap season evolved under this current administration so you have experience this year and then also from previous years. Working. Yes. So we have seen um, a lot of changes from this administration as far as immigration is concerned. And in relation to the cap season, two things kind of really jump out at me. One, um, something that's kind of an interesting development is over the last three years, we've been seeing what I would describe as last minute changes to policies or procedures that impact the cap season. So we really have to be on our toes and be able to pivot accordingly to make sure that we're taking into account all these policy changes. And then also across the board, we're seeing um, increased uh, scrutiny to the H-1B. So the adjudication standards are getting higher. Let me just talk about the last minute changes real quick. Sure. So um, just kind of going back to the first year of, of the current administration, the fiscal year 2018, the day before April 1st, on May 31st of 2017, USCIS issued a policy guidance restricting H-1B eligibility for computer programmers. And that was kind of shocking because it was the day before the cap. And at that point, if you already had a prepared petition for a computer programmer, there really wasn't anything you could do outside of contact the client and and ask them whether or not they still wanted to file, Um, Mm -hmm. knowing that an RFE was pretty much guaranteed and that would likely be followed by a denial. Did we have like any reasoning for why they were restricting specifically computer programmers or... And also, do we know by how much were they restricted from um, previous years? 
Yeah, so there was um, an earlier policy memo, I want to say it was issued in 2000, that opened up computer programmer as um, a specialty occupation. Mm -hmm. So from that point until the point that this policy guideline was issued, there's really no issue in filing an H-1B for a computer programmer. But this policy guideline that came out in 2017 stated that computer programmers generally do not require at least a bachelor's degree, which is the minimum requirement for an H-1B. And therefore, you know, it's USCIS's guidance that this does not qualify as a specialty occupation. Mm. Now, it didn't necessarily mean that every computer programmer no longer qualified, but it meant that you were going to have to be met with an uphill battle if you were filing for one. Right. And, and that's really interesting because a lot of these programmers are more and more becoming self-taught or not going through traditional educational sort of mm-hmm. programs, uh, but they do have the skills that's required for these positions, uh, but they just don't have that institution uh, specifically backing them. So it's that uphill battle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's starting. And I think as time goes on, we're going to probably see more and more of these instances. I agree. Uh, I yeah. think... Um, and that is kind of an interesting part for legal professionals in this field because we need to be able to respond to this changing nature mm. in the technology sector. Right. Um, because before, I mean, you're right, you still do need the skills. Mm. And there is a possibility for H-1Bs where we can equate experience to education to get an applicant qualified. But for, you know, for instance, it's it would be 12 years of work experience that equals a bachelor's degree. So mm. certainly you don't need 12 years of programming experience to be a computer programmer. And that's that's the argument that they made. Right. Um, any other changes? Um, so not in that year, but then mm-hmm. the next year in fiscal year 2019, we saw two policy changes. Um, the first was issued on February 22nd of 2018 when USCIS issued a policy memo regarding the evidence that was required for H-1B workers who would work at third-party work sites. Essentially, what that did was reinstated in a very hard sense an itinerary requirement mm-hmm. uh, where the petitioner would have to lay out exactly what the H-1B beneficiary would be doing for the entire validity period, where they would be working, um, and then kind of establishing how the H-1B employer would supervise that employee when they're working offsite. I think it makes sense, but to it have been issued a month or so before the H-1B cap season is difficult when you've already finalized petitions and they're just kind of ready and waiting to be filed. Um, So we certainly had to adjust to that. And then also that year, on March 20th of 2018, USCIS had announced that there was going to be a premium processing suspension for all H-1B cap subject petitions. So in order to file a petition under premium processing, you have to file um, a particular form, Form I-907, along with a, a separate filing fee. So again, a lot of these petitions at that point in time are in the finalization stage, getting ready to be sent to USCIS. So all of those had to kind of be backtracked and, and reworked uh, before they were finalized. But that was reinstated, right? Correct? It was reinstated yeah. later, yes. So this, was, this is kind of a newer trend that we're seeing with USCIS and premium processing that mm. when like workloads are too high, they, they tend to suspend premium processing. Mm. So for those who don't know, premium processing processing guarantees uh, a response from USCIS within 15 calendar days after they receive the petition. So it is quite a quick turnaround. You know, over the last couple of years, we have seen that come and go. So today, probably the biggest change was the the lottery. 
Yes. Yeah, so process. you um, you have done a, a phenomenal podcast. We had some attorneys do a webinar that you turned into a podcast. So that yeah, is available right. if you if you want all the, all the nitty gritty <laughs> details. But yes, right. on uh, December first of twenty eighteen, USCIS released their proposed rule to completely overhaul the H one B lottery mm-hmm. process. Um, and so the two major changes with that was a reversal in the order in which they select the petitions. So they used to select the regular cap first, and then they would go to the advanced degree. And they've swapped that. So now they'll select the advanced degree first and then take all those remaining applicants, put them in the general pool, and then select from there in an effort to increase the amount of advanced degree beneficiaries that are selected. So did it increase in the way that they wanted or projected for it to be? So the rule anticipated a 16% increase um, in the selection of individuals with advanced degrees, and USCIS recently released that they actually saw an 11% increase. So mm-hmm. not exactly what they were looking for, but, you know. It was an increase. Yeah. It was certainly an increase, yes. For sure. And then other um, changes with the electronic registration process. Yes. So when they issued the proposed rule, it included, as I mentioned, the complete overhaul. So that was uh, changing from filing full petitions to then this electronic registration period or uh, program where you Mm -hmm. only had to include some identifying information and then information about the position, and that was it. And then you would get a notice that says you were selected, go ahead, now you have, I think it's like 60 or 90 days to file your application, Um, which, you know, I think is great for efficiency purposes kind of all around, so you don't have to prepare all these petitions that we know are not going to be selected. But so when the proposed rule came out in December, we had to wait actually until the final rule uh, was released on January 30th of 2019 to find out whether or not this registration period would apply to this last year's cap uh, lottery season. So Mm. we were kind of there for, you know, like a month, two months trying to figure out, okay, well, if this is instituted, this cap season, how how can we... um, do this as a mm-hmm. firm, you know, sure. like how can we make our changes in our process that quickly? So they did come out on January 30th and said, you know, no, we're not ready, um, but be prepared for next year. So right. we're getting prepared. <laughs> <laughs> starting early, starting early. Exactly. But, you yeah. know, that wasn't the only kind of new change that we saw this cap season. Right. So we also saw a change to the form I-539, which is used for H-4 dependents of H-1B applicants. <laughs> so this applies, obviously, to all individuals who have to file this form. But USCIS on February 13th of 2019 stated that they were going to publish this new form on March 11th of 2019. And this new form would require a biometrics appointment for each applicant. And then Mm. also each subsequent uh, dependent would require their own new form. Whereas before you can kind of put them all in one form. Um, And then on top of that, they not only said we're going to release it in the future, but then they said, and from that day, we're only accepting that new form. Mm-hmm. which is really outside of the norm. Because okay. typically when USCIS releases new forms, they tell us in advance. And then when it's released, we get this transition period where we can finish filing all the forms that we've already prepared and then start using the new form. So to have a form released and become effective on the same day would have resulted in at least three days where nobody could file a form mm. because we would need to get the form and fill it out, get the beneficiary to sign the form, and then file the form with USCIS. And 
It that was like, kind of crazy. Yeah, it seems <laughs> like it's adding more steps than necessary. Y- yes. In that sort of sense. Yeah. So AILA, uh, which is the American Immigration Lawyers Association, sent a letter to USCIS saying, hey, guys, this is not how it's been done. Can we do it the way that we've done? Can we have a little bit of notice? Can we have a transition period so that, you know, we don't have any sort of filing delays for these cases and thankfully they listened so they ended up releasing the form three days earlier than they had initially stated and then they pushed back the effective date to march 21st so it did still affect all the cap cases mm-hmm. uh that had h4 beneficiaries that were going to be filing but at least it was a little bit easier for us to deal with Got it. and we're still not done <laughs> so one more um on march 20th of 2019 uh, USCIS had released their premium processing guidelines for the cap cases this year, discussing how it'd be done in a two-phased approach. One for those individuals who are filing under change of status, and another that will be available hopefully in June for the consular processing cases. Right. So it's just been a lot of like changes, and then we have to quickly adjust. So I think we're kind of in the groove of it now. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll be prepared for what will happen next year. Yeah. But that's kind of that that really jumps out to me as a trend. Yeah, keeping us on our toes, <laughs> keeping us on our toes. Well, and I think also people around in the office has been experiencing is higher adjudication mm-hmm. uh, standards, yeah. and that's also another big sort of change within the last year or so. Do you have any sort of Rates and figures. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I this. do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that the adjudication standards for the H-1B have increased over the mm-hmm. last three years. Um, we started seeing the increase in RFUs really with the fiscal year 2018 cap season. Um, mm-hmm. And this has all been verified as of recently. It's um, H-1B Employer Data Hub. And this has given us a lot of valuable information and Mm. insight into what these trends actually are translating into. If you look at the data available on this program, you will see that denial rates are three to four times higher under this administration than the previous administration, which Mm. is pretty significant. And just so that the listeners kind of understand what these numbers are that we're looking at, Mm. if you look at fiscal year 2015, we saw 6% uh, denials for H-1Bs. Fiscal year 2016, 10% denial rate. Fiscal year 2017, 13% denial rate. Fiscal year 2018, 24% Mm. denial rate. And in the first quarter of 2019, we have already seen a 32% denial rate. So these numbers are quite staggering, if you ask me. Yeah. Each each year, just the increased yeah i mean it's it's a it's an exponential jump you know um and to bring it kind of back to the cap world this program breaks down the data as between initial h1bs uh which is what all h1b cap cases fall under and then continuing h1bs which is generally for your h1b extensions so in fiscal year 2016 there was only a 10 percent denial rate for these initial petitions fiscal year 2017 a 13 percent denial rate and fiscal year 2018, a 24% denial rate. So again, it's kind of mirroring what those earlier figures are. Uh, It's just increasing every single year. Right. Definitely. With this increase year over year, can we pinpoint any reasoning for this uh, in terms of RFEs? Yeah. So that is what is most compelling about all of this data is that we really haven't actually seen any new H-1B laws or regulation to account for these changes mm. in denial rates. Mm. Uh, but what we did see is that these 
denial rates have correlated with President Trump's Buy American, Hire American executive order that specifically targets the H-1B category. And this uh, executive order was issued on April 18th of 2017. So if you line that up with the data, you know, it almost kind of makes sense. Except for it doesn't make sense. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because... What the executive order states, and I'd like to just um, quote it, if I may, because I Mm. think it's important to see what it is that's making these changes. So it states, in order to promote the proper functioning of the H-1B program, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, the Secretary of Labor, and the Secretary of Homeland Security shall, as soon as practical, suggest reforms to help ensure that H-1B visas are awarded to the most skilled or highest paid petition beneficiaries. And to contrast that with with what is actually required by the H-1B regulations, the H-1B regulations state that the H-1B visa is reserved for specialty occupations, which is defined as requiring the theoretical and practical application of a body of highly specialized knowledge requiring at least a bachelor's degree in a specific specialty. So while yes, the H-1Bs are reserved for those who are highly skilled workers. It's not necessarily true that they should only be approved for those who are the most skilled or the highest paid beneficiaries. Because while it's true that there are prevailing wage requirements for H-1B petitions, meaning that the salary of an H-1B worker can't harm the salary of a U.S. worker. Hmm. Um, So that's kind of built into the regulations. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean that this person will be the highest paid beneficiary that's getting the approval. So as a result of that, we saw USCIS issue several policy guidelines um, in an effort to institute this executive order. And one, after looking at all of this data, one that really jumped out to me was a policy that was issued by USCIS where adjudicators are no longer giving deference to prior approvals. So previously, adjudicators were directed to defer to prior determinations of eligibility, especially when cases, when you're looking at an extension for a person who's going to be working for the same employer in the same position, if, if another adjudicator has already approved it and there's no evidence of any sort of material change or a substantial change in the job that they're going to be fulfilling or any sort of material information that would um, adversely impact their eligibility, the adjudicator was instructed to approve the case. Right. And once that was passed, we saw that the denial rate for H-1B extensions double. Mm. So in uh, fiscal year 2017, they were there was a 5% denial for H-1B extensions. In fiscal year 2018, there was a 12% denial for H-1B extensions. Right. So the question I had is, why do we find this to be important? But like as, as we're thinking about like, hey, these were already prior approvals. Mm-hmm. And if we take in consideration of not much has changed since the last approval, what is the difference now that's making them receive a denial? Yeah. And that is something I would love to know the answer to, because <laughs> okay. I really racked my brain with where is the situation where if you do have an individual who's just continuing their employment and nothing's really changed, right. where you know they had met their burden on the first petition and they hadn't met their burden on the extension. Because, mm. and I could tell you, you know, sob stories of people who have worked here for decades and all of a sudden their H-1Bs are now being denied. But I think it's really important to note that the H-1B visa doesn't just affect immigrants in our country. Hmm. It affects all fields, but I would say in my experience, particularly the tech industry. Hmm. 
And so the tech industry, you know, I feel like we all know through the, the news and the media, they really support the H-1B visa because they kind of rely on it. And that's sure. not really surprising because based on the most recent data from the National Science Foundation, only 6.3% of undergraduate degrees earned in the United States are in the engineering field. And you compare that to China and India, where we see a lot of foreign nationals coming to the United States and fulfilling uh, these roles in the H-1B visa. In those countries, the engineering degrees make up 33 and 13% respectively of their undergraduate degrees. Also, even in the United States, international students make up roughly 70% of full-time graduate computer science and electrical engineering students wow. at U.S. Okay. Energy, hmm. uh, U.S universities so like mm -hmm. you know they're the ones who are getting the education true i would like to leave listeners with kind of this one piece of thought that if the united states continues with policies that result in a high h1b denial rate without addressing this low rate of u.s students obtaining these necessary stem degrees then we really have to sit down and consider what impact this will ultimately have on the United States technology industry as we continue to move into a more digital age. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law to join the conversation. Thank you for listening. See you next time.